The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Monday, May 4th, 2025, o'clock p.m. Boris Johnson declares that it could have gone either way. He says doctors had prepared an announcement for his death. Meanwhile, in important Kim Jong-un news, which involves me, I have interviewed the author of the new Kim Jong-un biography, which you should all read, Jung Pak, on becoming Kim Jong-un. And the whole, we discussed the whole story of the Kim Jong-un death watch. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, which is why we record podcasts about Kim Jong-un. But in lieu of fun, we have Dahlia Lithwick and Leah Lippman joining us to discuss Supreme Court justices who aren't allowed to have fun anymore so they don't get pageantry associated with their oral arguments, they get a conference call. Leia, Dahlia, welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Also, not to make it awkward right off the get-go, but it's actually Leah, not like the Star Wars princess. I you actually, know, my, although I do consider myself royalty in another universe, so it's all good. My apologies. <laughs> um, uh, my, you know, I've gone 41 days on in lieu of fun without getting somebody's name wrong. Not um, me. And, I do it every other day. <laughs> and so I uh, let me start with an abject apology. Um, uh, you always uh, there are these people that you uh, know only from uh, from Twitter and their written work, and uh, so. Uh, Apologies. Look, it's additionally well, appropriate on May 4th. May the 4th be with you. So again, it's all good. Apologies oh, God. Oh, it's so true. That's what it was, Ben. Yes. It was subliminal. It was in your head. Do you think that's what it was? I no. think it was just that I was, uh, uh, I almost always, uh, uh, um, uh, no, I, I, I think I know exactly what it was. It was that I went to, uh, early elementary school at an Orthodox Jewish day school with a uh, girl named Leah Strigler, who pronounced it Leah. Um, and so that's the template against which I've, I've, I've operated my whole life. Wow. Well, That'll do it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> it's so great to have both of you here. Um, so you- what were... No, no, go ahead, Kate. <laughs> We're always disorganized, by the way. This is exactly how it goes. We've kind of gotten lazy, I feel like, because we haven't had two guests on at the same time in a while. So it's kind of well, like- Well, why don't we introduce them? Yes. Now, now that we've figured out how to, oh, that I've figured out how to You do Dolly and I'll do Leah. Leah is a uh, associate professor of law, right? Associate professor of law. Um, unless you've been like- Technically, I'm assistant. Really? Is there anything been out there for a while about you? I thought uh, you got a promotion. Uh, I thought I saw you tweet it. Uh, okay. <laughs> not to my knowledge. Okay. No. Anyways, uh, uh, you are, you have a legendary con law, uh, con law class in which you have gotten an absurd number of celebrities to send your students various small adorable tidbits. I don't know if you're paying them, if there's like a budget in which you just pay them for those or if they do them out of the goodness of their heart. I kind <laughs> of figured, um, but still it's kind of amazing and legendary. And you also had your entire class, if I'm not mistaken, sing you an acapella song, like on Valentine's Day. <laughs> so this, the service that you're referring to, for those of you who might not know, is cameo.com, yes. where you can basically pay a lot lot of C to B, maybe if I'm being generous, lists celebrities to make a video message for someone. So when the classes moved to online, I 
use this service to have various B to C slash celebrities ask my students questions about constitutional law and or give them uplifting messages uh, based on the students' preferences about TV shows. That's pretty sweet. This I love seems that. seems like something in lieu of fun might make of use of. We have no budget, Ben. <laughs> like, we have no budget. You, know, you were the one who wanted to <laughs> I can pay send to you cameo coupons up. because I acquired a lot of them. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But also in addition like to also in addition to some being um a, a super user of cameo and, and being a being a con law uh, a goddess you you are um you host a podcast with melissa murray at nyu law school um uh, called strict scrutiny that uh which you're wearing the t-shirt for <laughs> oh, that yeah. is really smart and dahlia you're on it pretty frequently i think right have you been I don't on it? believe I like I've been invited either via cameo.com or regular <laughs> text message. Dahlia, are you a B-list celebrity? Or I, I think celebrity? I might be a D-list celebrity. It occurs to me. <laughs> I've Not in never, our world. You're never like been invited. Um, I've had, I think I've had most of the strict scrutiny team, three or four, I think, yeah. on Amicus. Um, but um Consider this your formal invitation. Lee and I, Lee and I are going to be on another podcast <laughs> together to get this invitation. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. the 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 run of Ben and Kate getting basic facts wrong about our guests here continues. I, to be fair, I have literally been on Zoom calls for faculty meetings and for like hey. everything else for seven hours straight. So like, <laughs> even though I know these things, I'm kind of like, oh God. Are you like I'm all of a sudden totally ask basic questions about your friends? It's terrible. Um, anyways, Leah, I'm so glad to have you on. I love strict scrutiny. It has been Thank wonderful. So and like I'm a huge fan of yours and your engagement with your students and just like how just how creative and fun you are with the law. And I think it's really Likewise, makes it accessible I've and great. I've you a bunch, basically suggesting we should be friends, even though we haven't met IRS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> it can be, I, I'm like, I'm there for it. One one cameo.com question. How much does a B C or C list celebrity cameo cost? It really varies. Some of them are extremely underpriced and they also go on sales occasionally. So for example, I got a Vicky Gumbelson cameo, which if you are steeped in Bravo television or real housewives, you would know is kind of a big deal for the price of fifteen dollars. Wow. That's that's I just want to point out that's significantly less than the goat or llama that Kate wanted to pay for to bring on in lieu of fun. <laughs> so, so, you know, just you just have to be watching the free goat on Craigslist. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just get this free goat and it can be on every other day. It could be a John, podcast. John, John Bordeaux texts us that uh, Morgan Fairchild was was going for a hundred dollars. But Morgan Fairchild is a Twitter friend of mine, and she's an incredibly thoughtful, interesting person, actually. And and I think she's uh, 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 like, I don't know what she goes for on Cameo, but if she wants to come on in lieu of fun as a proper guest, it would be a pleasure to host her. Uh, I think I think very highly of Morgan Fairchild. Dahlia Lithwick, what to say about Dahlia Lithwick. So first of all, in you got my name right, so that's huge. Yeah, well, Jesus. I'm Dahlia. Dahlia and I are kind of siblings in legal writing, kind of like we kind of got into it around the same time. That's code um, for old. <laughs> yeah, it's code code for like we have have spent a whole generation in the same business together, um, and you know, I just want to say that when we both burst on the scene we're right around the same age when we both burst on the scene um uh nobody uh threw grapes at the justices which you know so dahlia is actually one of the very few people you will ever talk to who completely changed the way people write about the supreme court all by herself and she is going to be all modest and shit and deny this. But the first time we ever had lunch, um, which is probably back in 97 or 98, sometime 
maybe maybe ninety eight sometime because I was already I was already at the post. Yep. And um, and you know we sat down and the first question I asked Dahlia was where did the voice come from, and that's how original it sounded like. And I've only asked that to one other person who was Morgan David Latt. Who, oh. No, no, David Latt, who is you know, blessed is God now recovering from COVID-19, but D David's voice was incredibly distinctive and Dahlia's voice was incredibly distinctive. David's a little bit younger and than we are and is it's a few years later, but Dahlia like shows up writing for Slate uh, through our mutual friend, the late Julie Hilden and, um, uh, and just completely changed the way people covered court appearances, court hearings. And I, you know, people talk about the fact that she's funny and she's funny. People talk about the fact that she's um, uh, like an insightful legal commentator. And, uh, but the big thing about Dahlia that you gotta know, which is something she told me at that lunch today when I asked her where that voice comes from, it's that in her heart, She's not a legal writer. She's a sports writer. And she's covering. She's covering the event. Um, I and love that comparison. That the, it explains the oh, poetry. No, no, it, it you were born a, to cover umpires, a, right, Dahlia? Well, it's just, <laughs> just hilarious. Balls and strikes. So. Hilarious that after today, when like we can all watch and listen, there's no need for sports writers anymore. It's a new era. Now we can all just turn on C-SPAN and watch. For ourselves but thank you ben that's an incredibly uh that's incredible it, ha it happens to be all true okay. um so plus one ben's with, thing with that plus two how did today go like all right like let's throw it open we had a we, live cover no cameras in the courtroom because there are no court, courtroom but anybody could be on that listen to that conference call we had live coverage of the supreme court i didn't listen to it did you guys, and how did it go? Uh, I, I listened, Leah. Yeah, listened. I also listened. I, I watched, um, the video was very funny. It was exactly by the way, um, so, so Ben knows that the first time uh, we had live uh, audio in real time was Bush v. Gore, 2000, and there was an hour delay. So this was the first time we actually had zero delay. It was real time, but it was very funny that for all of the, oh my God, here's the court entering, you know, the 21st century as though it's 1954. Uh, the actual video that you saw in C-SPAN was identical to what they threw up in Bush v. Gore, which is, um, that's my children just breaking a window, but, you know, just throw up the, the, the still of the justice, the um, name of the oral advocate, and it was verbatim. I mean, really just, if you were watching it, it was no different than what you saw then. That is the like high, high skyscraper technology that we had video today. Why do you think that is? Just out of curiosity, is it like an infosec concern? Is it like people are worried about it being hacked and like someone who shouldn't be a participant getting to like, like disrupt the whole hearing like what is it because certainly someone could set it up for them right like i think that they have long resistance. we could host them <laughs> right if you thought my introduction for leah was bad wait till i have to do like alito <laughs> celebrityjustices.com for 200 dollars, <laughs> you can get Oh, surely you can get Clarence Thomas to not say anything and not ask a question. Oh, but he talked. So that's the big headline. Today. He, he, he more than talked. He asked questions, follow-up questions, questions again. He was, I think he said more words today than he said in a decade. I may be wrong, but he said a so, lot of words. Yeah. So that's totally fascinating. Leah, why do you think... Clarence Thomas, who famously never speaks at oral argument, you put him on a phone and he's a chatterbox. Well, I think he is kind of a chatterbox in normal life anyways. And the reason why he doesn't regularly participate as a questioner in arguments is because 
typically arguments are a bit of a free for all, which all with all of the justices jockeying for as much airtime as they can. And so it can be difficult to get in a word edgewise. And Justice Thomas has said he actually thinks it's a disservice to the advocates because they don't have enough time to present their arguments. And he thinks the colleagues are unfairly dominating the advocates time, you know, not to improve the quality of arguments. And so he doesn't ask questions in part to give them more space. But the court, even though, you know, it was broadcasting its audio to the public real time for the first time, the public didn't get to see kind of real arguments and how arguments actually work because it was not the typical free for all in arguments. Instead, the justices asked questions in a very orderly fashion in order of seniority. And so each justice was encouraged to limit the amount of time and the number of questions they asked and the advocates were encouraged to limit their responses. And so in that format, Justice Thomas was willing to ask questions, I think in part because, you know, it was less of a fight for airtime when everyone had their own designated time to speak. So do you so think he would, really sorry, go ahead. Do do you think that he would support going to that after this? Like, no. No. Dahlia is vigorously shaking her head. Even if he did, I cannot imagine any of the other justices would be willing to do that. Even though I think that the argument went well today, all things considered, I think it was remarkably less helpful for the justices than a typical argument. Because in a typical argument, anyone can interject with a follow-up question. You can have a justice come to your defense or push you further. Whereas this, each justice basically only got one question and maybe a follow-up and so you couldn't really be pressed on your response and so it's just less helpful for people who are trying to figure out how to decide a case and what they think if they can't jump in with oh i have a question based on what you just said i think the maybe the best way to think about it is that um we, we have this fantasy that oral argument is sort of either helping the justices clarify their own questions or, you know, helping the oral advocates sort of push the, the ball down the field. It, it's, of course, neither of those things. Oral argument is the justices talking to each other for the first time about the case. And what they're doing is sort of like bouncing off these sort of potted plants that happen to be hopefully well-prepared oral advocates. But the colloquy isn't you know, to, to achieve sort of some end between the oral advocate and the justice. It's for Elena Kagan to signal to uh, Brett Kavanaugh that if they can come to agreement on this, then there are two votes for some outcome. That's what oral argument is. And I think that most justices would say maybe but once or twice a year, an oral argument actually changes their mind. What it does is it sort of opens the channels between them. And I think what Leah is saying is exactly right, which is nine separate colloquies, while very orderly and very civil, you have no thread. There's no sort of coherent thread where you can see, and, and this goes to another interesting point, I'm interested in what Leah thinks, but one of the things that you can see happening when you have the justices looking at each other is they have an inkling, oh, Justice you know, Alito's worried about this. If I dig on this, then I might pick up a vote there. Um, you can't do that. They can't see each other. And so I think in addition to the sort of fundamental weirdness of advocates who are having to teach themselves to argue without facial cues, you have justices who are trying to teach themselves, how am I gonna form a coalition when the person that I think I might have something to say to or deal with spoke 17 minutes ago? And that's very different from what they've had. And so I think to, to pull through the sports analogy, the whole game is different. The entire game, as I've seen it for 20 years, is a different one. Super um, interesting. So let's back up and talk about, like, just get an account of what the case was that they were hearing. Uh, Leah, like, we've talked about the structure of the argument and the, the form of the argument. There was a case here, right? And it's one that <laughs> almost nobody cares about. Is that fair? Um, I think that might do a disservice to the patent bar, uh, who is a uh, patent and trademark bar, who is extremely into this case. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a wonky I case. I said almost. <laughs> fair. Um, right. uh, patent it, it, and trademark <laughs> lawyers are admittedly 
really jazzed about this game. <laughs> and they are people too, um, but- uh, Just aren't that many of them. <laughs> Uh, so the case is booking.com and it basically is about whether you can trademark a generic word like booking followed by .com because traditionally you cannot trademark a super generic word like cake or road, um, but sometimes you can combine those generic words with other words and they become um, trademarkable. And the question like you here, and tube, for example. Right, exactly. Or cake boss or things like that. And so the question in this case is whether you can add .com on top of a word like booking and whether that can be uh, a trademark. So it's fair to say that the mass interest in this argument is mostly a function of the mode of the argument rather than the substance of the case. I mean, next week, they're going to hear the uh, the Mazars case, which we can talk about, and the, the, you know, some of these really big confrontations between uh, the president and his uh, would-be investigators. But this week, is it fair to say, Dahlia, that the interest here is really a creature of the fact that we're doing this? Yeah, that's why they picked booking.com for today. I mean, they, there's a reason they didn't do, you know, Little Sisters or, uh, you know, the financial records cases today. And it was, there was a great moment where um, it was fairly clear that Justice Sotomayor didn't know how to turn off her mute. And so like the chief called on her a couple of times, that's my son, chief called on her a couple of times. And, uh, and she was like, oh, whoop. you know, like, like how your Seder was when like somebody like forgot to unmute. And anyway, it was funny. Like they're, they're, Nobody they're working on the case. ever forgot to unmute on my <laughs> Seder. Seder. My okay. Seder was like a hundred people all unmuted <laughs> always at the same time. Exactly how I would imagine your Seder would go. Um, but but so, you know, they're working out the kinks and there were a couple of, of funny moments. Um, I would say, I don't know if Leah would disagree. There was a sort of a, I think especially Lisa Blatt, you sort of had the feeling that she was like at a crab shack, like on the bay, just making jokes, <laughs> having a grand old time. Like there was a level of kind of casualness. She sort of dunked on Justice Gorsuch for not reading one of the amicus briefs. He laughed. Like there was a, a, a slightly wacky quality that I think was new that I, I so um, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think that part of the wackiness was honestly just from it being Lisa Blatt. And I think another reason why they picked this case is it was two very experienced advocates who are somewhat unflappable. So Lisa Blatt was arguing her 40th case. She has this remarkable win-loss record. She's won 36 of the 39 cases that she's argued. One of them remains pending. And you know, she also has a very kind of casual demeanor up at the podium. And so I don't know that her remarks were kind of atypical for Lisa. Um, this is someone who ended an argument about the Indian Child Welfare Act likening, you know, ICWA to um, uh, basically a two-tiered system of segregation. This is someone who spent her rebuttal at her last oral argument basically intimating that the other advocate had upset her and making a joke about how she didn't go to a fancy law school. She only went to the University of Texas. So she's very, very comfortable in front of the justices. And I think that her joke about crab house or crab shack you know, that's a place where, you know, it's not where the crabs live, where you eat dead crabs. It's just kind of like a typical Lisa argument. And it was in her briefs as well when she noted that you can put together generic words like crab house. And I think she made a joke about, you know, what if under the government's theory, Waffle House would be toast. And so that tone is just so very much a part of her. Waffle House would be toast. I right, very A plus plus that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she did she did a long riff on like trying to source toilet paper. Yes. That was, you know, like all the like toiletpaper.com and like I need toiletrolls.com. Like she is, I completely agree. She is, she was just waka waka. Um, I guess I was surprised at how many justices kind of goofed along. Um, and it just felt as though there was like, you, you a little bit had a sense that they were like, you know, in their fuzzy slippers <laughs> with their like, there was just much less of a sense of like, 
gravitas. And I absolutely think, I guess this goes to your question, Van, you know, the, the court's about to take these financial records cases, little sister's case, they're handing down DACA, they're handing down Title VII. Like this is, you know, incredibly serious, serious, in my lifetime, probably never a more serious term. Uh, and so I think it was just strange to start it off with the like Harlem Globetrotter plate spinning. Like it just felt goofalicious and Thomas speaking, I mean, I just didn't think he was going to speak. So for me, that was like, oh, we're doing that too. So. Well, and so, Justice Breyer, so like after he asked one question or in midway through one question, he just said, oh, good morning, right? <laughs> right. So it just had this familiarity to it from some of the justices that was a little odd. Yeah, yeah. So, so let, I mean, let's, let's talk about that because like, I, I mean, Lisa Blatt is an extremely talented oral advocate and one of the things about the great oral advocates is first of all they they all know each other really well and they have a uh, a sense of the rapport they have a a rapport with the justices or in the case of the circuit courts the judges they really do know what they can get away with and you saw that last week at the dc circuit argument which proceeded telephonically similarly each judge had a you know had a set amount of time it was kind of like somewhere between an oral argument and a uh and a congressional hearing right had a set amount of time with the advocates in the in the don mcgann subpoena case uh and the the related case involving uh congressional challenge to the reallocation of funds associated with the wall and you 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 really can see how this like grossly favors the repeat players in front of the court because the stylization of the argument is all gone and so the guy who's done hundreds and hundreds of arguments in front of that court Doug Letter just has an immense advantage over now of course the cases are not decided on the basis of these I mean, but arguments. But that's always but, the case a little bit, right? Right, but it's magnified, I think. And so Elisa Blatt, who um, is, you know, Lisa is a very talented oral advocate. She's folksy to begin with. And she has a sense, you know, I accepting what Leah says, I think Dahlia's point that she has a sense that she can get away with a little more um, you know, may well be right. And so she does, right? And she kind of plays that advantage a little bit. Um, does it matter? Or is it at the end of the day, you know, a footnote in the case that was argued on such and such a date by teleconference and the substance of what any of them say doesn't really matter at all, except that we're talking about it. I think I kind of agree with Dahlia that it is rare that oral argument ends up making a difference. And so it doesn't ultimately matter whether you have someone at the podium or on the conference call who is more familiar with the justices than someone who doesn't. That being said, sometimes it does matter. And so the risk of having someone who isn't as familiar with the justices and wouldn't know what to do in that situation is always going to loom large, given that these cases are all going to be high stakes once they get to the Supreme Court. Um, but you know, the other advocate, Erica Ross, you know, she's an assistant to the Solicitor General, and it's not like she has quite as many arguments as Lisa, right. but she also did you know, superbly well. Um, but there are gonna be some cases, this sitting, the telephonic sitting, where it's first time advocates at the Supreme Court, I think including in one of the um, faithless elector cases that the court is hearing next week. And uh, I think also in the Affordable Care Act contraceptive yes. mandate case with the um, attorney from Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, it also being the first argument for, for that attorney as well. But, but just one thing that I think Leah should speak to, which is it is quite a remarkable thing that we had two women today. Uh, because see, her eyes are doing that cookie monster thing. That's because women, you know, the, the, the particularly the formal Supreme Court bar uh, is, is shockingly, shockingly male dominated. And I think that there is something profound about the fact that today was a woman and another woman. And uh, to the extent that, you know, America tuned in for a second uh, on C-SPAN, they saw something that is really different from what we see most days. 
Yeah, right. So they this got sitting two is... women arguing. They got Clarence Thomas talking, and they got people not interrupting. Uh, and Crab Shack. Uh, and the Crab Shack and, and the Waffle Crab House and to- <laughs> toilet paper. Cheesecake Factory. Melissa, <laughs> Melissa Murray. We see you in the audience and we'd love to magic you up, but we don't want to do it without your consent. Cause, but so just ping us in the chat and let us know if you want to, would love to join the conversation. We'd love to have you. Um, in the meantime, sure, can I say two small things just really quickly. Totally, please so just do. on the yeah, number of you, women, you, you know, sorry, go ahead. Just on the number of women, 26 people arguing in the May sitting, three are women. There were something like 135 attorneys this entire sitting or entire term, 20 some women. So just to give you a sense of the statistics. And then second, while you know the familiarity with the justices and among the Supreme Court bar, I think is a good thing and that it gives you an advantage. I think it is also worth pausing over the fact that it does create this kind of insular network with odd incentives, given that you aren't oh, yeah. really able to speak freely about the justices and the court and the other advocates, given the you know regularity with which you interact with each other and like depend on having that kind of good rapport with one another. Yeah. No, that 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 is so so true. I mean, the the gap between the public discussion on the part of people who uh, have personal intimacy with the Supreme Court, the the gap between their public accounts of the court and their private accounts of the court is very hard to overstate. Um, just as a as a class, so I want to, uh, in fairness to Justice Thomas, uh, uh, pose the question of whether his exchange with counsel in this case um, tends to validate or refute his general criticism of oral argument. So you have a change in rules. Uh, for this for this set of cases that causes him actually to engage and ask questions. Number one, was he more respectful of counsel and less inclined to interrupt, more inclined to let counsel present argument than it normally happens in, in oral arguments? And number two, was it, to the extent it was or was different, was it more illuminating? I mean, here's one thing I will just say is that I think there's one version of why Clarence Thomas doesn't talk at oral argument. It's the one that Leah laid out, which is, you know, he has said on several occasions, you know, these people come into your house. When people come into your house, you shouldn't interrupt them. But he, he's had other things that he has said over the years. He has said the reason he doesn't talk is because he grew up with this Gullah accent from, you know, uh, from his uh, childhood days in Pinpoint, Georgia. And he's very embarrassed about, I mean, he's, he's had several stories. And so I, I just feel like to sort of cabin this to, you know, he doesn't like the lack of civility is a little bit not entirely, I think, the whole ball game. Um, I, I thought his questions today were fantastic. I thought he, you know, asked good questions. He was engaged. Um, I also think I kept trying to figure out, and I don't know what Leah thinks about this, what he was going to do when he was called on. Like once it was stipulated that they were going to call on the justices in order of seniority, I was trying to envision him just being like pass or, you know, just like not getting off me. Like I didn't know how it was going to go. And so I was, I, I don't know if anyone else, here's Melissa, I, I don't know if anyone else was startled that he spoke. I was completely startled. But I think in so far as, you know, he asked good questions, they elicited good answers. All the justices after him cited back to his questions for a while, which tells me, you know, they were trying to sort of enroll him and be sort of in conversation with him. Um, but I, I guess I just would go back to what I said at the beginning, which is I think having nine separate colloquies with nine individual justices just is a fundamentally different enterprise from having sort of nine people playing dodgeball. It's just a very, very different dynamic. And so, and I agree with what Leah started with. I think you got some good information, but in terms of getting a line, in terms of building coalitions, in terms of the justices figuring out how they could kick off a vote. I don't think any of those things happened. Uh, I guess I'd be curious what Melissa and Leah think. 
Well, can I briefly introduce Melissa really quickly? (laughs) Hi, Melissa. Thanks for coming up and joining us. Melissa is a co-host with Leah Littman of Strict Scrutiny and is a, uh, is an incredible con law, reproductive rights, justice, um, uh, feminist justice. And then I'm trying to kind of remember, like you do family law too, I think. And like, yeah, you do all the stuffs and all the good things, uh, that, uh, that a law professor could, could do. Um, and, uh, you're at NYU and thank you for joining us from, from lurking. I did not mean to hijack this. I was just listening. You're not hijacking. We're just, we're just hanging out. We're hijacking. I put a crusty crab shack up for you. I love that. Uh, I feel like <laughs> backwards, that but it's okay. Today. She was just hanging out at the crusty crab shack. Um, I thought today was fantastic, but I, I think Dahlia is right that the real winners today weren't the justices, but the public. I mean, I think it was just unusual for the public to hear all of the justices. And I, I was saying to someone else, um, for most Americans, their first and only introduction to a justice, unless it's someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is the confirmation process. So they never really see the court at work. And so this was kind of remarkable in that way. And no justice, just for for clarity's purposes, no justice is remotely him or herself in the confirmation process. Uh, You know, None of them, I mean, unless you say that the confirmation process reaches some deeper truth about who they are, which, you know, maybe at a sort of metaphysical level true, um, these are not, like, these are people who, um, who are not actually represented all that well. But, for example, you would never know that Elena Kagan is funny and um, and uh, you know witty and um, she got uh, in a pretty for- good joke about you know uh, Chinese food uh, on Christmas at, uh, at her confirmation hearing. Yeah, and didn't she, she also ex- have that really good line she- about broccoli and like and she had a good broccoli? With- Sorry, and she had a really good exchange with Lindsey Graham about all kinds of things, and yet. Um, her confirmation process was a lot less funny than she is in oral argument on a regular basis. Yes, I would buy the Dave Chappelle st- like CD rather than the Elena Kagan like <laughs> like Elena, Elena Kagan's first album of her live show. That's true. No, I mean, it's like the confirmation process is not designed like your goal in in the confirmation process is to avoid mistakes and the task of avoiding mistakes and the task of you know being a justice at argument or in writing is completely is completely different and ben i think it's more profound than that i think i really think that there are at least three justices maybe four on the current bench who are so profoundly damaged by their confirmation process that the rest of us are paying for it and so i don't even think it's well what do you you mean by that dahlia like paying for it in what sense like they don't talk as much i i I defer to melissa murray's rolled eyes right now i mean it's counting i was like who are they i know i can think of two i'm like who are the i can think of two I think that uh, Alito still holds it against uh, uh, Democrats uh, in the Senate. It, he, uh, at least apocryphally, has said that he will cross the street rather than like walk on the Senate side of the street because you may remember his wife fled the room crying. Uh, we know that Thomas feels like his oh, yeah. confirmation hearing, you know, all but sort of wrecked his life. And by the way, like to just take it one step further, I think that starts to leach into the way they write about the public and public access. It, it leaches into, you know, the, the Thomas concurrence in Citizens United. So I just think like, let's be really clear, Ben, you're describing like, oh, there's a discrepancy between, you know, the person they present at at their confirmation hearing and the job they do at the court. And I think their confirmation hearing alters the way they think about the First Amendment and public access, and it affects the way they think about media. And I think, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was very clear uh, at his hearings what, you know, the repercussions for being embarrassed at his hearings were. So I think it's, it's, there's a straight line, not just between that discrepancy, but between how it then begins to inflect on doctrine. 
Yeah, so that's that's that I suspect right. Um, although it's unprovable, of course. Um, but I mean, it's a little bit provable. Like, look at Brandeis. Like, Brandeis wrote an entire treatise on privacy. Like, like after right, although, a, like no, no, he wrote, after a column, right? Like that about his dinner party, uh, in the his post. daughter's but wedding, long, right? But long before his Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, but my point is, is like when it becomes personal for them, they change how they feel about something. That's no, that, my point. <laughs> like whether so it's look, confirmation I'm, hearings or not. I'm just thinking about Dahlia's point in light of um, uh, the two. So I have actually spoken to John Roberts about his confirmation process immediately after it. Um, and uh, so the first interview he gave after about his confirmation process after it was with me for a book that I was writing. And, you know, he had a, like I thought surprisingly cheerful view of the confirmation process. Um, he also had the advantage of having not had a glove laid on him. And um, now Brett and I have not spoken since his process. And, uh, and so, you know, he's somebody who I was, I wouldn't say close to, but on sort of warm terms with over a very long period of time and, um, and whom I came out against um, and I, I have to say, I have in 20 years of knowing him pretty well, never saw a trace of the side of himself that he showed at that hearing, was profoundly shocked by it. And I am moved by Dahlia's point that, you know, Maybe the answer is he was not hiding it from me. Maybe the answer is he was actually impacted by the process in a profound and negative sense that has lasting repercussions. So I don't want to let him off the hook for his conduct at that hearing, which was appalling. Um, but I, I suspect that Dahlia may be getting to a very deep truth about the impact of this process on people as people, as opposed to people as disembodied minds. So just the fourth person though, Dahlia, who's the fourth? Well, you know, as I said four, I thought maybe it's it's not four, but I do think that Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch's confirmation may have changed the way. I, I think that his um, sort of hail fellow well met, you know, he was so beloved on the Tenth Circuit and I don't think um, was used to the kind of criticism he got. And I think, uh, you know, he's my, my weakest case. I mean, I actually just not to belabor this, but I think if you go back and read Dovey Reed, if you read the Thomas concurrence um, uh, in Citizens United, I think these some of these visions of what the press and the public do to people, there is some provable, you know, it's not just um, I'm making stuff up. I think there's some real feeling that the existence of the press, particularly of the internet, uh, is there to destroy my life that maps really, really well onto their experience at confirmation hearing. So I, I think I have a no good case for Gorsuch, but I, I, I put him in the bucket of people who I think has changed somewhat since confirmation. So one justice has spoken about this a little publicly and that's Justice Sotomayor in her biography. Like she talked about after her confirmation, how, you know, in light of some of the frankly horrible and racist things that were said about her during the process, she arrived at the court wondering whether she belonged and feeling a bit out of place and feeling like that, you know, kind of limited her ability to do as, you know, great of a job as she could have done at the get-go. Um, but I think that that way of the confirmation process affecting you is maybe a little bit different than the other ones that, you know, we were speculating about. So she's spoken about that, I think, at length, like, you know, she's when she was at Berkeley a couple of years ago and we were in conversation, she explicitly mentioned it um, as this example of a time when 
you know, her credibility was, or her legitimacy was called into question in a really public way. And, and she felt it acutely for at least the first couple of years on the court. And, and you know, and she talked openly about it. Um, but then she, she sort of pivoted and said like, but it wasn't like my whole life, everyone just assumed that I was great at everything. Like I've always been the person who has had to live up or live past expectations. And I think that's the difference between some of the other examples that Dahlia is pointing to. Um, you know, these are men who for the most part have always had the benefit of legitimacy and credibility. And this perhaps was the first time where any of that was really questioned in not only a public way, but in a way that actually was real. Oh my gosh. I'm like loving this conversation because it's absolutely fascinating. And I love the discussion because I do think that the, the very essence of how much this entire process of confirming justices has shifted in the last 25, 30 years has just completely like, of course it has an impact. And I think that Dahlia's point is so great. It's like, oh my gosh, we should all like co-author a law review article about it. <laughs> like there's just like so much there. Um, but I'm serious. Um, the, the one thing that I wanted to talk about and that Ben kind of like kind of highlighted by the fact that like the first case was booking.com, which, you know, I'm a dot-com person, but this was not really a dot-com case. This was like a way back to my roots, like kind of like IP case. And it was like, it's, it's interesting, but to me, and, but like in kind of like not a great way, what is far more interesting to me and has always been fascinating to me since I was in the EDNY and then the second circuit is the different norms uh, and the different use of technology. And of course I've, I've never, well, not of course, but I've never clerked for the second, for the, for the Supreme court, but um, I certainly have had friends who have and like heard all about it. And I want, I don't think most people know how completely crazy the technology and the limitations of the technology are um, in communication between justices, like at various levels. So if you're a trial court judge, it's just your own little fiefdom you're doing your thing right like and so my judge my judge was actually blind my east so i would print out things in 20 point font and i would also read them to him but he would mark them up in like that huge font so that he could read them because he had glaucoma and he was amazing that he was still able to do work and he was brilliant and it was great but then my when i went to the second circuit everything was by fax and it was goddamn insane like you'd send a 60 page opinion and then your clerk would like the other clerk that was doing all of the edits would call you up and give you the line and the page and the comma to change and the edits that they had. And it was just, so, I mean, like the back and forths and the paper, it just made no sense. Like there was no track changes. There was nothing. And then if there was a few judges even that had never updated from word perfect and they hadn't updated from word perfect to like the next generation of word perfect that could mesh with doc. So actually there is a judge in the second circuit who I will not name that uses six different computers to transfer files between like, I mean, like, I'm just like, she like literally her clerks have to like go like this and it's just crazy. Um, okay. And then, and then we have the Supreme court, which is handwritten memos. Like, and what, and like everything you guys just talked about, everything about looking at people and understanding them, like, I get it all. How is that? But like, how is this translating? And like, why are these things still appropriate? Like, I get that there's some security in them. I get that there's some reasons for them, but this is just, this is berserker to me. It doesn't make any type of sense. Fax machine for Christ's sake. Like, I don't even understand like how that's still a thing. I don't think the concerns are really so much about security. You know, we were asking about why the court hasn't done this format and doesn't make video more widely available. It's more a fear about how the court is going to be perceived by the public. You know, are they going to be the subject of memes? Is there going to be a funny video of Chief Justice Roberts on the John Oliver show? Are people going to take the questions out of context on the daily news? Are it's the advocates going good. to play for the video cameras? I think that that has partially been the concern with putting videos in the court and the justices concerns with broadcasting their own work and impeding the quality of arguments as 
a result of people, you know, playing for the camera. I don't know. But how I'm actually we- not even talking about Leah. Like I'm talking about like how they communicate within themselves. Like there should be some type of like record to a certain extent of like, well, maybe not. This is a bigger conversation that I'm opening up, but like of like the, tra- like the transparency and deliberations behind the scenes. Um, and those memos and like them like with that. a Slack channel. Like, <laughs> could you even imagine? I know. <laughs> could you imagine like, a Slack channel? <laughs> it's not a security risk. It's just like they're old and they don't want to learn a new technology. And that's not how they want to run their business. They would prefer it's to also, be comfortable. It's also that they, I mean, it goes back to why are we not televising this in the first instance? Like, all due respect, the Canadian Supreme Court has been televising arguments since 1970s. Like, it's fine. You know, the British, you know, in the UK, they made this decision. It's fine. Why did they not allow it? Because they don't want to. And there's no way to cabin that or constrain it. And I mean, just going to your point, it is obscene that the justices can determine who gets to see their papers when. Why do they get to decide that like, the world is going to wait 72 years and then see my papers? Like, that's not you know, that's, that's exactly the thing you've identified as the problem. And I think the answer to all these questions is just because they can. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's an interesting trade-off of legitimacy that the more that like, oddly, even though we all clamor for transparency and accountability, that if you saw the sausage getting made, it would have less effect. Like if we saw Justice Sotomayor brushing your teeth, uh, or if we saw, you know, um, Justice Thomas, like getting in his car and picking up his mail or dumping his trash or like whatever in his slippers, like that there would be some type of like loss to like the austere nature of the court. And I just think that that's actually something that we also have to get over. I think that that gets back to like Ben's point about the gap between how people who are familiar with the court talk publicly about the court's work and then speak privately about the court. Exactly. I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think we have a public mythology that we are all invested in at some level. And then we have a private reality that we know and um and we know it because you're up close and you see it, you know it because you've clerked, you know it because you've existed in Washington or in legal circles in an ecosystem in which these things are openly discussed. And, you know, and the result is that, you know, you have an awareness that justice so-and-so, you know, isn't that bright or doesn't work very hard. Um, and you have a sense, and, and these are commonly discussed, commonly acknowledged and, um and but they're not part of the they're not part of the public discussion because there's a mythology that we are all preserving at That's some not level true, and, because sometimes it is part of the public discussion around certain justices so you know archibald cox famously said that thurgood marshall um was not the hardest working justice but deserved credit for picking the smartest and hardest working clerks and a similar kind of critique has been lodged about justice thomas and you know i'll allow you to draw your own conclusions about what the two men have in common but i think the really interesting point about the public versus private mythology of the court is the two seem to be meshing when you have justice ginsburg's face on a crown on a tote bag i mean like where's the separation between the two? And and if the whole idea of keeping the cameras out is to preserve the anonymity of justices, I don't know that you can continue to draw that line when you have a rock star justice who's very much a public figure. And and more than that, I think- With respect, sorry, go ahead, Dahlia. No, I was gonna say it's it's more than that. It's that every one of these justices when they have a book to hawk goes on the Daily Show and goes on, right? So, I, I mean, there was a time Uh, not that long ago, where, for instance, Justice Brennan just did no public appearances, none, zero. 
But to have justices say, oh, no, no, it's unseemly and inappropriate to have cameras in the courtroom, that would somehow demystify this oracular institution. But stay tuned next week when I'm going to do, you know, a, a Fox News interview about my book. Like that's, it's beyond, you know, I, I can't fault Justice Ginsburg for the fact that people have tote bags, but I can certainly say that if these justices want to collapse the distinction between their public and personal lives, only when they have a book to sell, like only when they want to sort of step into the conversation on their own terms, then I think the arguments about having cameras in the courtroom really, really become completely fatuous. Oh my God, Dahlia. <laughs> excellent, excellent point. I couldn't agree more. I think that like, but to Melissa's point really quickly, like I completely agree that there is this, like there is this collapse. There's a total collapse between like kind of these like public private personas and like when they want it and when they don't. And I just, I really do think that like, I, and I also have to say that if I could have it my way, I would have like shot, even though I love her as an icon, like I would not want a sitting Supreme Court justice to be like the icon, like the living icon that she is, like celebrity that she is, just because I feel like there should be something like there, like I would like that like later if she had retired from the court or something like that. But I like the fact that she's currently on the court bothers me a little bit. Like, I just like, don't want like there to be celebrity wrapped up in being a Supreme court justice. I think that there should be, I think it should be frankly, like kind of the boring job that Clarence Thomas has always wanted it to be. Yeah, and, 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 to be, and to be fair, there are some of them who basically don't do public appearances. Um, uh, the most striking example of this, and, and notably the one who was most, I think, personally revolted by the idea of cameras was Justice Souter, who, you know, He's a weird guy, but- We love Justice really Souter. Am I does. the only one? No, but oh, no. I'm Justice Souter fan. Oh my God, I love that man. <laughs> I am not criticizing Justice Souter. I am saying he's a weird guy. And his idea of, of doing something in public is, you know, moving the garbage out from his cabin where he sits by the wood stove and reads Blackstone, right? Um, he's- this is a very private person who, you know, kind of hated the celebrity culture in Washington and genuinely did not participate in it. Did he get to mugged? Was it him that got mugged? Uh, you know, it was yeah. Breyer. No, it was Breyer. No, Breyer. Was Breyer was definitely mugged. I don't know whether Souter yeah. was as well. I think Souter was on his bike in DC and had something happen. And I think Breyer was in like a vacation home and had someone break in. Oh, they've okay. all they've all had close. I thought someone's running too, was Melissa. Souter. That was my memory as well. Anyways, whatever, I'll look it up. But I just thought that it was Souter. But anyways, Ben, I'm sorry. But but I mean, among current justices. Alito doesn't do a lot of stuff in public except, you know, the occasional uh, bar speech, right? He's not writing books and promoting them online. Um, and, um, and actually, Kagan, although she is, um, you know, something of a public celebrity, although not in the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, obviously, She's a, you know, that is actually for things that she writes in opinions and says on the bench. She's not giving lectures. She's not, you know, writing essays. And so I, I think some of them have a little bit more of a claim to the monastic tradition. And of course, the other one who I think falls into this category but isn't on the court, Merrick Garland has never given a public speech. He's been on the DC circuit since 1996. And he gives no public speeches. He's written nothing in public. He doesn't do public appearances. Uh, um, and so I think some of them actually have a more legit claim to the kind of monastic tradition of, of the court than others do. Um, some of them, I fully agree, are you know perfectly willing to be celebrity personas when it's convenient to them and drape themselves in the anonymity of the court when it's inconvenient. Guys, this is all a great lead up to the Facebook oversight board, which is just in case you haven't, in case you've been following it, is going to be the Supreme Court 
for like the Supreme Court for the entire world <laughs> on freedom of expression. <laughs> no, it's uh, no, it's not. But um, but yeah, I God, this was such a great conversation. Melissa, what were you gonna say? No, I was, I was going to say the new governors, um, give you a shout out for your piece. But I also was going to say Justice Thomas has a movie coming out. And I just saw it the other day. Is it a true Ooh. crime movie? It is not. It's a documentary. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like his version of RBG, except he actually participates. So it's in his own words. And I think the only other person who speaks, um, who's not, you know, footage, like past video footage, is his wife. So I, I watched the whole thing. Um, she is cray cray. <laughs> I'm sorry, like, but like, I like, I've read a, I've like, I've read a lot about, like, I read his book. I've like done, a, like, I've done a fair amount of reading, and like, I think that unequivocally, like, you could say that his wife is a little bit out there. So I'd be fascinated to see what she comes across like in the movie. She comes across um, as very supportive and very loving of him. Like, oh, just, well, that's kind of nice. Where have you have you seen it already? I saw, I, I got a screener and I watched it yesterday. Um, yeah. And is it good? Um, it, I mean, I think for what it is meant to do, I, I think it is good. I mean, I, I think it is an almost public rehabilitation, like sort of to try and to, to, to make his jurisprudence understood and, and to sort of have him be understood in, in the public mind. Um, I, I, I you remember, feel actually, like his like jurisprudence can be has like a coherence to it, like in which to be understood because they're like I, I, I feel do. you do. I do. I do. Um, yeah, I, I think I think he feels misunderstood, particularly by minority communities about what he's doing. And I think you know he is a conservative, but I don't think he's sort of a Burkean sort of classic conservative. I think there is a deep strain of what. You know, some would call black nationalism to his conservatism. Um, you know, and and I think you can't honestly wrestle with his jurisprudence and some of the questions that it poses without just sort of being to acknowledge, like he does understand himself to be someone who is an agent of community uplift. It's just not the uplift the community may want. So I mean, I, I think it's really interesting, and I think he, I think, and I'm, again, I'm no Clarence Thomas apologist here, but. I think this was an effort to try and um, present a more legible, at least to him, vision of what he's trying to do. No, I think that's a very fair and kind of a beautiful assessment of it, honestly. Like, I think that like, that's the only thing you can go into a movie like that with, right? Like, is like, just kind of like having an open mind as to what it's gonna present to you. The wildest part though, is I actually saw a preview for it when I was going to see Jojo Rabbit. So what? <laughs> the hell is Jojo Rabbit? I don't know. Oh, Jojo so, Rabbit's amazing. Jojo Rabbit was amazing, but I, I was in, it was the before. Y'all have children. <laughs> is Jojo Rabbit a kid's thing? No. Um, my, my daughter, who is almost 13, has seen Jojo Rabbit, and she was just like moved to tears. Um, my, like, my, my younger child has not seen it. But, um, but I, I thought it was just like, it just came on as one of the previews. It was like a bunch of other previews, and then, you know, Clarence Thomas was on the screen talking, and so... But apparently it's not going to be in wide release because it was expected to come out when there was not a pandemic. And now I think it's going to have a harder well, time. Well, guys, could we like convene this group again to like watch the, watch the- Clarence like, Thomas like movie a, night? Yeah, it would be really fun. It would be like, a, we all watch it. Then we all have like a book club. It is except it's a movie club. That would be fun. I, I actually have a tell more people. people yeah. I always tell people the best autobiography, I think, uh, of a sitting justice is Clarence Thomas's. I mean, I love- uh, I thought it justice. was really good. It was, I loved Sotomayor's because I thought it was the most like joyful read I've ever, you know, she's just such a big hearted, like amazing character. But I just think in terms of illuminating like the psychology, a, a little bit of what Melissa's saying. I think Corey Robbins' book, um, on Clarence Thomas sort of makes that same, sort of marries the black nationalism to the sort of uh, arch conservatism in ways that are really important. And I think, um, you know, the, the question I probably get most about Clarence Thomas is like, he's dumb, right? And it, 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 that is so fundamentally a misapprehension of him. He is so complicated, but I actually, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I can like, 
it's hard to imagine the sort of RBG analog of like, you know, the Clarence Thomas rehabilitation. But I will say, I think just psychologically, he is the most fascinating, fascinating person on the court. 100%. I'm like, yeah, this is why I read. He's the only, he's the only, he's the only person whose book I read. So like, yeah. So there you go. There's the, the, the takeaway from the hour. Read Clarence Thomas's autobiography. Who um, saw that coming? <laughs> like, not me. <laughs> right. I'm just hitting, um, hanging out with like SpongeBob over here. Oh my God. So we have, uh, 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 fin- we need to finish up because um, uh, our time is up and we don't religiously finish on time, but we try to finish within striking distance of on time. Dahlia, Leah, <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Kate, what's our sign-off today? Um, our sign-off was going to be the butt song, the butthole song. Did everyone see oh. this on the internet? Yeah, you got to play it. Hold on, I have to find it. You're, I didn't you think you were going to make it. me do a sign-off because, uh, but this- Every day there's a sign-off, Kate. Just like I have to come up with Kim Jong-un and Boris Johnson news every day. Your job is the sign-off. But you've it's got a true, but I'm off. just kind of bad at it. And so uh, I also just like, yeah. Anyways, okay, here fabulous. we go. Here's the sign off where I'm going to share my screen. I'm going to do it. Uh, it's the butthole song, guys. I wonder what's inside your butthole. I wonder what's inside your butthole. Maybe there's astronauts and maybe there's aliens. Oh. There you go. Um, what's inside your butthole? I always want to know. I always want to know. Um, that's, that's the that's sign all. off. That's all I've got. Bye, Ben. Bye. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Who, who do we have for tomorrow? Oh, it's going to be someone to talk about what's inside your butthole. Yeah, that's what's coming tomorrow. All right. Until yeah. then. It's not a joke. It actually is an anal health doctor. But we're going to have an anal <laughs> health doctor on t- uh, tomorrow. And until then, remember, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still come hang out with us. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining Thank you. Us. Thanks.